Welcome to The Green Rush, a podcast about the intersection of cannabis, the capital markets, and culture. On a weekly basis, hosts Ann Donahoe and Lewis Goldberg of KCSA Strategic Communications speak with the CEOs, financial experts, cultural icons, legislators, and generally interesting people moving the cannabis industry forward. But this week, Ann is out of commission, so we're bringing in Aaron Smith, former CNN cannabis reporter and now a KCSA team member, to talk with Evan Eneman, CEO of MGLO Alliance, a leader in the cannabis, financial, tax, and advisory services space. LO has worked with hundreds of businesses to help them solve complex problems in regulatory compliance, capital markets advisory, tax services, operational improvements, as well as staffing needs. Evan previously worked with Casa Verde Capital, a venture capital firm focused exclusively on the cannabis industry, which counts Snoop Dogg among its partners. Cannabis finance is spectacularly complicated and challenging because even though 35 states have legalized cannabis in some form, it's prohibited by the federal government, which means that most banks won't go anywhere near it. That's why some dispensaries and other cannabis businesses deal exclusively in cash, which creates a whole set of problems on its own. Don't sit back, lean forward, and learn about the world of cannabis finance. All right, Evan, welcome to the Green Rush. I can't believe it's taken us this long to get you on. Um, so you are the CEO founder of the MGOLO Alliance, which you have described, and I and I agree is is the Deloitte of the cannabis industry. But what does that mean? What what is what is your company? Yeah, it's a great question. So the MGOLO Alliance was the first national accounting and consulting firm to fully commit to serving the cannabis industry and doing so wholeheartedly. So what that means is is that we have resources, technology, experience, uh, you know, throughout the cannabis industry and other related industries. And the goal there is to provide a, a seamless suite of integrated services. Um, we've worked with cannabis businesses at every stage of the industry lifecycle, uh, from helping you know pre-revenue and growth stage startups to raise capital and structure their entities, to providing other value-added services like management advisory services or assurance services to you know cannabis industry leaders, whether they are going public or planning for uh, mergers and acquisitions. So that's that's the model, uh, providing a holistic approach to helping our clients achieve their objectives directly through our team members and collectively with our partners. And that really separates us from the rest of the advisory and professional services firms in the cannabis industry. Well, thank you, Evan. Uh, uh, my journey at the KCSA was an odd one. I guess we all have a story of how we got into the cannabis industry. I started out as a police reporter. I used to cover the gun industry for CNN. I, I also used to cover the uh, the cannabis industry, yeah, which I, I really liked. You. I used to pitch you yes, stories. that's true. That's true. Lewis used to pitch me, and then eventually he hired me. I realized at a certain point I just wanted to go into PR, and I just wanted to work in cannabis. It just felt like me. I feel very comfortable here. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And I was wondering, what is your cannabis story? How did a nice CPA turn into the king of corporate cannabis? Yeah, that's an interesting story, and, and uh, it, it's kind of navigated a few different industries in, in many years. Um, you know, like many other people, my first experience 
with cannabis was in college. Uh, it was after a breakup and a uh, roommate, <laughs> my freshman year roommate and, and his girlfriend at the time wanted to get me to unwind and, and relax and kind of take my mind off of certain things and, and kind of have a nice experience. So that was my first experience. And they kind of took me through it in a very um, caring way, you know, brought some really good flour, got some really good chocolates to have. And these were not infused at the time, but they were just really good chocolates. Um, just so I can fully understand and experience what the, um, you know, process would, would be. And so that was my first experience um, being from New York and living in New York for about 11 years after school. That kind of curtails the cultural connection to the plant. And for a very long time, it was very much. Wait, 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 wait. You lived in New York City and you're telling me that you had problem getting weed? No, I did not have problems. <laughs> I said the stigma and the cultural association was very different from what right. I then experienced moving to California. Yeah, there's definitely not the same. You're right. There is not the, the same cannabis culture in New York. It is a, a consumption culture. Like, call up the guy on the delivery, he shows up, and then he walks away, and you don't have any relationship with the industry. Yeah, I mean, that's part of it, but it's more how people view consumers and consumption and the purpose for it. And, and that was really what was interesting for me. So I was in New York City for 11 years um, working in consulting and leaving that to go into hospitality and to go into entertainment and media. Um, and I moved to California because I had a, a film project with my business partner who was a film composer that one uh, at Sundance was up for a few Oscars, one not in the you know film scoring category, but it gave us an opportunity to take a plunge and, and move out to California. And that's when I really understood the cultural side, but not just the culture of you know consumption, but of health and wellness and, and really what the opportunities of the plant can can provide from a societal standpoint. And it was interesting because one of my close friends that I was a roommate with in New York City for a long time, He'd always make this reference when, you know, I was either stressed or frustrated and, and kind of reacting in a way that wasn't, you know, ideal. He would say, you know, Evan hasn't taken his medicine. And of <laughs> course, being in New York, being the stigma taboo that it was, that would upset me even more. And I moved to California and realized what he was saying is that this really is a plant that provides very beneficial properties for certain people of a certain lifestyle. And for me, it was stress and you know growing up in that new york very tense and proper environment um although i never had that mindset i'm, I'm not a type a personality so that brought me out to california really started to understand what this plant was um and through various activities and relationships got involved in some early stage venture opportunities and, and launched a firm in that space at the same time launched a creative agency and at the same time we were going through that process after Washington and Colorado legalized in 2012 and implemented in 2014, we're working with companies and, and they all had the same challenges. They didn't understand either how to run a business, how to account for their business, how to you know create financial controls, uh, you know how to focus on compliance or strong governance, all these things that I've done throughout my career, either when I was at you know a top professional services firm at, at PricewaterhouseCoopers or running, you know, supply chain and, and e-commerce at a hospitality firm or, you know, working with uh, talent and, and entertainment professionals and, in, in, you know, the entertainment side of my experience. And so I found a partnership and a partner with, with MGO and decided that it was, you know, really an opportune time to launch 
Ello, which is which is our, our dedicated you know cannabis advisory practice with MGO to create the MGO Ello Alliance, and it really was to help to build the infrastructure of the industry, create trust and transparency, and add value that we didn't see being added at the time. So why did why did you have to do this? Why didn't PwC or Deloitte identify the cannabis industry as an opportunity? Is it that they were too risk adverse, or you were just too smart? I mean. How did you beat them to the punch? They're, they're just way too risk averse. I mean, you have to understand their positioning. They are large multinational firms. They're, you know, looking to navigate a very, uh, you know, complex and cumbersome uh, federally illegal plant and, and substance. So there was no way for them to enter the space the same as many other, you know, large operators and brands. And so that created an opportunity for more nimble entrepreneurial, you know, firms and people to to take their experience, enter the space and, and really help bring that trust and, and credibility to the market. Well, uh, Evan, you are eyeballs deep in one of the most serious issues and challenges in the cannabis industry. The fact that uh, the government prohibits the product and also equates banking with some form of money laundering. And I was wondering, how do you work around that? That is such a serious challenge to the an- the industry, and it's something that really needs to be fixed going forward. It does, and it certainly is one that has stymied the growth of the industry, has created some other uh, public safety issues, and there aren't a lot of great workarounds right now. Uh, you know, there, there has there has been some clear guidance around what banks can and cannot do. And so we do see a lot of uh, smaller uh, community banks, regional banks uh, that are willing to support the, the cannabis industry and, and, and operators, either ancillary or plant touching. It just becomes much more burdensome from a compliance standpoint. Can you give us a, sp- a specific example of that? You know, like if I if, if I was a normal I don't know, um, retailer, like a, I, I had a, you know, a Starbucks or I, you know, Starbucks is not a franchise, but if I owned a franchise coffee chain, right, what could I do differently that I couldn't do if I was part of MedMen, for example? Well, you really can't get access to traditional banking services, financing vehicles, inventory financing, factoring. Uh, you know, that was the nature of the industry probably two years ago. You really just had a bank that would effectively custody your cash and maybe offer you check writing, um, but really not do much more than that. You certainly can't process credit cards or you haven't been able to process credit cards uh, in, in a way that most other businesses can. So it's restricted people from operating in a very normal fashion and having to figure out workarounds. And, and now that has continuously changed. More banks are entering the space. We have a meeting next week with a, a very you know reputable West Coast bank that is interested in getting into the space. Again, just recognizing their risk and compliance obligations, and they're willing to do so because they see the opportunity. They understand that these are you know really uh, honest, hardworking business people and professionals that are supporting the industry now. Uh, Evan, I wanted to ask you about uh, 280E. A lot of people in the industry complain about it. We know it's a law that originated back in the 80s to force illegal drug dealers to pay taxes on ill-gotten goods. But now even legal, tax-paying cannabis entrepreneurs have to deal with this hangover from the 80s because they're not allowed to claim business expenses as exemptions. Could you explain 280E? What is it? Yes! Say it! 
dude. Yeah, you are like preaching. <laughs> Preach. Well, I'll I'll tell you this. I am not a tax professional, so in my you know experience in working with our clients and working with my tax team here. 280E effectively says you can't deduct normal uh, business and operating expenses, general administrative expenses, with the exception of your cost of goods sold. So that means if you're a cultivator and the materials that you use to grow the flower that you're going to then process, package, and sell, that you can deduct. And you know every stage of the supply chain up to retail limits what you can take as a cost of goods sold. So in a retail environment, your floor space where you, you have your you know sales staff, that is not a cost of goods sold, but potentially some of your back office space or your inventorying or warehousing would be. So it creates this really complex uh, structure of what you can and cannot deduct, which makes the entity structure as well as the resource allocation, um, not so much difficult, but just more complex to set up. And you have to have a very clear purpose as to why certain things would be deductible as a cost of goods sold on the front end rather than trying to do so on the back end. And so it's really creating a defensible position for what should and should not be deductible, what can be separate business entities. And a lot of times that's just good practice from uh, you know a general industry standpoint, not necessarily from cannabis alone. Uh, for example, you might segment out your IP into an IP holding company. Well, that gives you the opportunity to have other expenses that might run through that vehicle that would be traditional to run through that vehicle and not commingle it with the licensed operation of your retail establishment. So there, there, there are ways of thinking through how to you know, structure the entities operate that address some of the limitations of the, the 280E uh, sort of control. But at the same time, there's been a lot of momentum to eliminate that or reduce the onerous burden of trying to operate at a, a cost structure of significantly higher than any other business. Yeah, and every public company who's in the space complains about it on every single earnings call. If but for 280E, da 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 the impact on EBITDA would be X. Um, we both work with either public cannabis companies or pre-public cannabis companies, companies that are going public. Um, you guys are, are probably um, the, the sharpest consultants and accountants and, and advisors on the market. You've seen lots of these companies go either RTO or list on the OTC. If you could come up with like the three or four biggest, you know, hurdle or biggest easy mistakes to avoid for a company that's going public, what would you, what would they be? What are the, the just like the dumb things that can trip a, pub, a company up? It's a great question. And, Obviously, going public is an incredibly complex undertaking. There are a lot of things that can go wrong, and there are many that we won't be able to talk about here. One thing that I can say is, is the process cannot be rushed. Um, you know, when we help clients prepare for the process properly, it's, it's making sure that their financials and operations and entity structures are in order, and that there is a specific outcome driving this go public decision and process. So there are a lot of small mistakes that can be made early on, uh, like financial inefficiencies in the tax structure, uh, weak internal controls, or even a focus on what an internal control is, lack of corporate governance. Um, these can all disrupt the go public process and cost companies hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars later on when operating as a public company. So there, there are some fundamental principles that can help 
companies avoid those common pitfalls. And, and that really is to have a complete understanding of the process, the good part of going public and what that allow a company to do, as well as the maybe detrimental parts of, of being a public company and, and what the cost might be and what the reporting and regulatory requirements are. And that's that's very different. So, you know, if you're thinking about it, you know, think about it early on, think about what your exit strategy is and build a really strong leadership team at the C-suite and your board of directors. And ideally, they've gone through this process before, regardless of the cannabis industry, they've operated or they've gone through a go public process in any industry that will provide them really valuable uh, guidance and experience in this process. So, uh, Evan, uh, the U.S. House of Financial Services Committee recently released its draft text for their proposed marijuana banking bill. What are your thoughts on that? And what, what steps does this call for? And how do you think the industry is going to react to this? You know, federal legalization addressing the, the cannabis banking crisis or issue is certainly long overdue. You know, as we mentioned earlier, there's just tremendous amount of struggles around businesses operating, um, you know, legally and lawfully and, and really in the best interest of the public and, and providing for public safety and trust. So, you know, the current banking laws don't just create a, a difficult environment for cannabis businesses, but but they do create that public safety concern uh, related to, you know, you know, cash based businesses. Um, so the complexity comes in asking, you know, whether or not, you know, we're, we're putting the carpet before the horse and that rescheduling cannabis at the federal level or descheduling it is the priority. Or do we make sure that we can create a, a robust banking infrastructure um, that allows operators to uh, address those uh, public safety issues, the uh, you know transparency uh, matters that we want to address. And so that makes it a really difficult goal. Uh, but the absence of that and, and the progress in the banking laws is of great value. The most recent draft, you know, which includes greater protections for businesses and financial institutions, it's it's progress in the right direction. Um, there needs to be much more. And I think the industry is, uh, cautiously optimistic and, and hopeful, if you will, um, that there has been such good momentum, bipartisan support at the legislative level, and it feels like we're on the right path. And the question is, how soon and how do we implement that? So there, there's a long way to go, but certainly it's a refreshing uh, you know, sense of leadership uh, on the Hill and, and moving forward to support the industry. Just to remind everybody, you're listening to The Green Rush, and we're talking with Evan Eneman, CEO of the MGOLO Alliance, the nation's only cannabis-specific accounting and consulting firm. Um, we've both been in the industry now for years, not decades, but years. And you know there are lots of people, the historic market participants, who look at, at the way that the industry has changed, grown, commercialized, um, you know, not in a in a positive way. You know, there's this this tension between the historic stoners and the suits. Um, if you looked at it that way, where would you put yourself? And then, more importantly, is this a false dichotomy? I mean, is is there really this tension still between the historic market participants and the new market entrants? It's a really interesting question. There's, there's a couple ways to look at it. I mean, certainly it is a false dichotomy as to the difference between the two supposed parties. Uh, it's, it's not as big as, as one might think. Um, 
the way I think about it is more of a mindset. And there are certain people who live their life to consume cannabis, and that might be looked at as a stoner, uh, the stoner stereotype. And then there's the people who live and have a certain lifestyle that they enhance with cannabis. And so that's a really fine line between the two. And there have been a lot of professionals throughout history, obviously, that have consumed for various reasons, whether it's for you know, adult use or recreational purposes or for some sort of health and wellness aspect. Um, you know, I don't really define myself as one or the other. I am who I am. And that's kind of how I always will, um, you know, conduct myself and be and, and everyone else can lay labels and claims and pass whatever judgment they want. That's that's not something that I really do concern myself with. Um, but whether someone's wearing a T-shirt or a suit and tie the reality is the industry is full of intelligent, creative, and driven individuals. Obviously, all of us on this call included. Um, you know, on the outside, if you're looking at it, it makes for some really interesting networking events. But ultimately, you know, we as a population agree on the sensible regulation of cannabis. We all have a lot of great ideas about how cannabis businesses can work, and everyone's on the same side. And I think it's a matter of dropping the stigma and kind of putting your guard down and just taking people for who they are, whether they consume or not, should not be a factor in that. So, uh, Evan, uh, you are basically saying that the the fix to cannabis banking and cannabis finance is to basically lift federal prohibition, that that would be more important than than basically any, any uh, marijuana banking bill or any kind of coal memo or anything like that. Realistically, how long do you think it might take for that to happen? And since the stigma still seems to be sort of fading and it is becoming less controversial as time goes on, what do you think is really preventing Congress from getting rid of federal prohibition? Well, that's a very complex question. And I'm not sure I'm saying that, that that's the only solution rather than having some of the banking reform or other steps in the process. I think they, they all serve a purpose. Um, you know, completely descheduling, lifting the overall, you know, ban and allowing for the plant to be fully studied, fully, fully implemented in society, I think is something that we, we should be working towards. How we get there, that's just part of our process. And if we look at a macro level and what we see around the world, whether that's in the legalization you know happening in canada or the world health organization and the european union recommending rescheduling and descheduling to at the very least provide for research and development and understanding of the plant and, and all its you know myriad components that's really where we need to get to uh, from a time perspective you know the u.s sits in a really interesting period of time a very politically divisive uh you know point in time where we have this bipartisan support for some form of legalization, uh, whether that's, you know, risk. No, it's it's over 60 percent for adult use. It's it's like there's nothing nothing polls as high as legalizing cannabis. It's not even close. Yeah. And, and if only our lawmakers and, and policymakers listens to people directly and, and listen to the percentage of, of interested parties, we'd be great. Unfortunately, that's not the case. We have minorities uh, in terms of policy perspective that run the country. And, and unfortunately, that creates a really challenging environment for everyone else. Um, but nonetheless, you know, this election cycle is probably going to drive a lot of 
the direction of the industry. And we see almost every single candidate on the Democratic ticket talking about cannabis reform, criminal justice reform, trying to address the societal harm that's been created by the failed war on drugs. And ultimately, on the other side, you may see some of that. You may see people that have been impacted by the opioid epidemic and, and taking a different look. But there also is the economic benefit. And, you know, certainly, um, you know, descheduling of, of any, uh, you know, illicit substance and, and not cannabis alone, but really anything, it has its benefits and it, and it has its, you know, potential concerns that we right. should is think it, about. And, and is we need to Oregon study looking it. at um, uh, hallucinogens on the ballot? Psilocybin, yeah, and MDMA yeah. studies around PTSD treatment. I mean, these are things that should have been going on for years. We've lost decades of research. Um, and ulti- ultimately, we, we've hurt ourselves. Um, and, you know, the, the question also came back to why has this been the case? And, um, you know, many people will point to very strong and effective, well-pocketed uh, lobbying groups from different industries. And although that may be entirely the case and the reasoning for it, I think it's just a, a, a situation where we've had some very slow moving people that are unwilling to change their position because of decades of misinformation and disinformation campaigns that had a very specific intent and purpose, which was to keep the plant illegal, to keep all the byproducts of it illegal because of the... Well, and to keep the... the I mean, I'm sorry, but it's it drives me nuts. Also, it keeps it's always also designed to keep the for-profit prison system filled with people who are black and brown who were either selling or consuming the plant. I mean, it was absolutely it was it's absurd. It's one of the challenges that we have, and you know, people want to call things a certain way, you know, socialism or democratic socialism, and. You know, people taking handouts, but then we also are happy having government funding for roads and infrastructure and other things that we look at. And so, you know, the the for-profit prison system is a really significant societal challenge that we need to address and we need to address it immediately. And there are a lot of people that are being very outspoken. Um, unfortunately, again, some of that falls in deaf ears. And You know who? Do you know Danny Moses? Uh, familiar with the name. I don't, I don't know him. Dan, well, Danny, Danny's a friend of, of ours, a friend of the podcast, but he's a, a private equity investor in the space. He was part of the big short. Um, he was in the book. He was in the movie. Um, and he actually does a podcast called Bale Street that really focuses on this, is on the, the, the prison industrial complex. And it's one, it's well worth a listen. Um, and two, he's a big investor in the space. I'll, I'll have to introduce you guys. Yeah, that would be great. Now, uh, Evan, uh, earlier, uh, I know you. I know you're a finance guy, not necessarily a banking guy, but you did mention earlier in the conversation that there are some regional banks that have stepped up and uh, decided to offer banking services to some of these cannabis businesses. I've always actually really been impressed by that. You know, Citibank won't do it, but you'll have a regional bank in Maryland that will step up and offer banking services to dispensaries. I wanted to ask you, considering the risk that they're taking, if it is a big risk, why are they doing it, and how do they get away with it? How do they make it happen without getting in trouble? Well, everything you do is a risk, uh, you know, whether it's banking or not banking. I mean, the risk to a Citibank of not supporting the industry is that they're never going to have the accounts that are of the largest mm-hmm. cannabis operators in the world. Uh, yep. You know, that's a risk to them. So it, it, it's on both sides. I mean, from the perspective of why they're doing it, certainly there is an opportunity to have a robust relationship with 
hyper growth companies and entrepreneurs and people that are doing this for the right reason. And ultimately, there's a financial incentive for them to do so. Uh, they can also right now have you know higher margin services in the cannabis industry, given the additional risk and, and compliance that they have to go through. But ultimately, they're they're really adhering to FinCEN guidance and what was originally proposed in the Cole memo, and so they they have this protection of if we're operating in a state where it is legal and we're complying with FinCEN guidance and everything else, we feel comfortable with the enhanced uh, compliance controls in place, and we're going to serve the industry. And that may be a moral or ethical reason; it may just be purely a business reason. Either way, it's good for the industry, and, and we're happy for that to happen. And ultimately, that won't be a risk factor and, and a you know a hindrance to the industry growth. Last year, we saw a, a, like a tidal wave of RTOs and raising a ton of money, um, and we saw Canopy get you know four billion dollar investment from Constellation, and we saw the start of the M and A um, tidal wave that was predicted to to, to crest. What is this year looking like for you guys from both a, a new listings perspective and facilitating um, M&A? There has been a lot of activity and there will continue to be. You know, last year was unique. A lot of people looking to the public markets to gain access to, um, you know, retail communities and retail investors to gain access to capital that they're not otherwise able to get in the private markets. Um, and, you know, we've seen that go really well. We, we've seen it go terribly wrong. And, and so that's a really important distinction to make. It's, it's not always good for everybody. and It's not always the right path for everyone. Um, you know, with that said, we, we do see a lot or we did see a lot of uh, pullback towards the end of the year, uh, you know, right after uh, Canada went fully legal in October. There is a, a slowdown in the process for the you know RTOs and IPOs in, in the different markets, especially in Canada, and that was just the dynamic of the market. We have seen that reverse quite considerably in the first few months of this year. A lot of our clients and prospects that are interested in going back through that process, getting set up for it, and ultimately they're they're preparing themselves either for a public transaction or cleaning themselves up for an infusion of, of private capital as well. Um, so that is picking back up. And again, it, it really is unique to the situation of the client. It's not right for everyone. Um, but for those that understand how best to utilize it, it is a good opportunity. On the M&A front, we are still seeing considerable amounts of, of M&A, um, both strategic in the sense that large scale, you know, in the U.S., multi-state operators are thinking about now that they have cash and now that they have some infrastructure they need brands they need you know products to put through retail channels and so you look at you look at what acreage did with the form form factory acquisition right i mean they they, they bought a uh, a formulator and co-packer that they're going to roll out nationwide that's amazing and the ebu acquisition by by canopy i mean yeah they, there is money sloshing around we're seeing it, and we're seeing it in the U.S., and we're seeing it internationally. Obviously, the Canadian LPs are able to move a little bit more nimbly in, in international markets. And in, in the U.S., it's a lot of you know sort of internal consolidation, if you will, uh, which which is exciting for the industry. You know, it's that first wave of M and A that happened last year. We're going to see a, another wave this year, and we're going to consistently see that uh, as new entrants come in, build strong brands or, or good operations that have strong fundamentals. The, the larger scale operators are going to look to acquire. And I think we'll probably see some distressed assets as well. 
um, that will be ripe for, um, you know, acquisition or some other restructuring. And, and so we'll see the market continue to shift um, pretty dramatically over 2019 and into 2020. The uh, the legalization experiment has become the legalization experiment became a lot more serious when Canada came on board, and it's real interesting to look at it from the American perspective and to just see them raking in the money to be pulling in all this American investment and investment from Europe, all these other countries. They're actually going to be able to export this stuff to Europe, and here we are. It's still illegal on a federal level. I was just wondering what you thought about that from a financial perspective, to be looking at Canada, to be looking at the opportunity they have for as long as that window of opportunity lasts. What are we missing out on? Is that going to be the big incentive that really pushes Congress to finally do something? It's really interesting. I mean, if you look at the industry as a whole in its entirety, not just domestically, but internationally, it's still a relatively small industry and it's still early on in its life cycle. So are we missing out on a lot of the early opportunities today? Absolutely. I think it's great that Canada and, and obviously everyone there, uh, Health Canada and, and uh, you know, government is, is really thinking through this in a way that is helping their country, both uh, from an import and, and from an export standpoint, and it will force our hand at some point. Um, you know, we're seeing U.S. operators like Constellation make investments strategically into Canadian operators that they can understand the market. Um, but ultimately, everyone recognizes yeah, that the U.S. is the market to be in. Uh, it is the growth sector for the space. And it's not unlike other industries. I mean, not everything uh, emanates or is derived from the U.S. And, and that happens in the beverage space and, you know, spirits and beer where you might get, um, you know, barley or hops outside of the U.S. to brew certain types of beer. And so that's the difference of where the market is today is that you have these artificial uh, constraints. Um, once those barriers are, are dropped, I think the U.S. will remain a, a, a not remain, but but be a very significant player on the global on the global scale. Um, are we missing out on some near term opportunities? Absolutely. That's why everyone is going to Canada and other markets. Um, we have some clients that are exploring uh, other public markets that will be really interesting and, and first of their their kind. And so, you know, we're missing out on the near term. Long term, I don't think that's an issue, but it is something that will drive. I think Congress to make a decision, even if just economically, as money pours out of the U.S., they're, they're going to want to bring that back in. Where are you seeing the smart investment money flowing? And you don't have to name names in terms of specific companies, but is it still the MSOs? Are people now looking at ancillary service providers? Are they looking at, at individual brand companies? Like where, where do you see the, that investment capital flowing? It's still flowing everywhere. And the way I look at it and the way I advise, you know, either, you know, partners or, or investors is to invest in what you know about, invest in where you see the opportunity where you can add value because there's value at every uh, area of the supply chain and in every aspect of the industry. So if you are a traditional food and beverage investor, yeah. stick with it. You know, that's where the industry is going. You know, if you believe in infrastructure and manufacturing, then, then that's where you should focus your time and attention because all of those are being developed right now. And, and as much as we have a few larger, call them more dominant brands, it doesn't mean that those are the largest and dominant brands that will emerge in the next few years. So 
you know, it's it's going to come down to execution no matter where you are, whether you're a brand looking to be the next, you know, Coke or Pepsi, or you're a multi-state operator trying to navigate the complex regulatory framework of launching retail and manufacturing and distribution in all these markets. It, none of that's easy, and it comes down to execution. There's a lot of risk in that. So smart money is going to smart operators and people that understand strong fundamentals. And that doesn't mean they're not going to look for, you know, growth and hyper growth and, and some risk takers, but they're going to want to see people that have experience in executing on their strategy. And that could be a small startup and that could be a multi-state operator. It's really where you feel the most comfortable. Evan, you are you are also not known not only for what you're doing with MGOLO, but your time at Casa Verde, um, and you have you invested in some of the best deals there. Um, what are you doing now on the investment side? Yeah, so when I co-founded and launched, uh, you know, Casa Verde Capital several years ago, the the intent was to build that trust and transparency and the and the infrastructure of the space, if you will, and, and that's still the mindset that I have. In, in launching a new investment firm called Sands Lane Capital, a lot of it really is the same approach. It's it's building strong infrastructure, but more importantly, it's it's thinking about where the industry is going. And from an investment standpoint, from an investor's point of view, you asked before, where is the smart money going? It really is going where people are comfortable. So for me, I've I've always had the viewpoint of brands create and hold tremendous value. And so for what I'm looking to do moving forward is focusing on the brands and, and potentially the, the licensed operators as part of that infrastructure. And we see that in traditional CPG, uh, you know, brands hold the value and, and we have this really interesting marketplace now where you have to be vertically integrated. Well, that's not how most industries operate, um, but there's value across the supply. So how no industries operate, right? I mean, I can't think of another one. Can you? You know, they don't, but certain, you know, certain uh, companies do, you know, at scale, you might have a, a wine uh, producer like Gallo who builds their, you know, creates their own glass bottles. And yeah, and, but they don't have a, they don't have their own liquor stores. They don't, and they're also not allowed right. to. So there's right. there's differences there, and obviously that will will play itself out. So from an investment standpoint, you know, I, I do believe in looking at it, you know, across the industry, looking at the landscape domestically and internationally, seeing where. Cannabis is where the sort of influx of hemp derived products are given the farm bill. And it's, you know, opportunistic in a lot of ways. And it's still fundamental. You know, everything right now is still foundational. There is a lot to be done. So, you know, as we launch our new vehicle, a, a big part of that firm is is going to be focusing on being very diligent, institutionally focused, uh, you know, having the right governance and controls in place and leveraging the infrastructure that we have. I mean, a big part of what MGO and ELO does is provide platform for information and knowledge sharing and support for the industry, as well as for how we want to support the industry from a principal perspective. You know, uh, as an East Coast guy, I've been watching jealously as the West Coast states have all the fun, one state at a time, legalizing recreational cannabis. And then Massachusetts came online and now we're, we're in the game. And New York and New Jersey are in this neck-to-neck race to see who can legalize first through a legislative process. I was wondering, who are you betting on? Who do you think is going to get there first, New York or New Jersey? Yeah, it's always fun. I mean, being from New York, that that New York-New Jersey uh, rivalry is is always present. And and now we see it uh, kind of rising up again. 
Um, obviously, both states, if you will, have made it clear that legalization is a priority. Um, you know, New York is still earlier in the legislative drafting phase. We've kind of seen the direction of where Cuomo wants to go, um, but Jersey's a little bit further. You know, they have plans in place. They're waiting final votes. You know, I was in uh, New Jersey last week for an event, and it seemed like there was a, a very imminent uh, process for legalization, you know, within weeks. So New York has that momentum. It, it certainly has Governor Cuomo's, uh, you know, public view and push, and, and that's really powerful. But it does seem like New I Jersey want New Jersey. Ready. I live in New Jersey. <laughs> yeah, I live in New York. Like Jersey's ready. <laughs> yeah, well, let's take a bet first. Yeah. yeah. Well, look, if New York goes legal, it doesn't matter because it'll be in Manhattan and it'll be fine for me. Um, Great. Yeah, it's you know, it's what are they going to stop me at, at, at New Jersey Transit? Well, the, the path train in New Jersey Transit might have a different scent over the next couple of years. We'll see. Uh, it's. It, I have to tell you, over the last couple of years, you walk down the streets of New York, and literally over the last two years, the the scent that wafts through the streets is so fundamentally uh, more pleasant than it used to be. Smells better than cigarettes. Yeah, better than cigarettes too. So, man, I, I you know, you got into this industry early, um, and you everybody makes mistakes. And I really believe wholeheartedly that, that we only learn from our failures. We don't really learn from our successes. Is there a failure that you, you look back on and one you're like, I still don't understand how I got that one wrong? And, and what was the lesson you took from that? That's a really on-the-spot question. Thank you. Yeah. Um, hey, yeah, by the way, I'm there. also going to ask what size your shoes are, what right. size your waist is, you know. You know – Gosh, there, there are so many mistakes that I've made throughout my career, um, which is really, to your point, it's, it's where I learn. Uh, it's where I step back and, and think through what have I done well, what do I need to improve upon, and, and really think about things, um, you know, more holistically. And, you know, for me in this industry, a lot of it has been not trusting my gut. And, and that's from early on. I mean, there are things that I had not done at a, as I wanted to do back in 2015 and 2016 that still remain relevant today and, and is still why I have, uh, you know, so much energy and passions that there's still so much more to do. But trusting my gut is, is probably the, the biggest weakness that I've had is that I've not done so. And I have relied on some other people throughout the process that I should not have. I've trusted some certain, you know, opportunities that I should not have. And, you know, when the red flags are there, be mindful. They're there for a reason and be very cognizant of them. And, and I think that's for everyone. The industry is plagued with dishonest, distrustful people as much as it has many people who are honest, caring, and giving. And so depending on your perspective and who you are and who I am is someone who wants to add value and create community and positively impact all of the stakeholders. That's where I spend my time and energy. And I trust my gut in that more now. And it took me some time to get there, but that's something that I have learned over the past few years is important. Would you say you're a better judge of character now than you were? I would definitely say I'm a better judge of character. I, I will also say I am very trusting. And I'm very giving. And that's just my nature, um, which sometimes, you know, causes great harm. But it's also who I am. So I am a little bit more cautious in entering into relationships, professional relationships, 
uh, with people, but I am a better judge of character and really trying to understand uh, someone's intent. And if the intent is good, but they're just not getting there through actions, then that's someone I could probably work with. If their intent is bad, uh, in addition to their actions, then then that's someone that uh, I, I tend to avoid. Hmm. That's good. Interesting. All right. Let's let's get we're 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 at about the forty five minute mark. I want to ask uh, you know one or two more questions about MGO and then be respectful of your time. Um, you guys, you know, historically been LA based, but you're now opening up a New York office. You uh, you you coming to take on Markham and some of those guys? Yeah, you know, this is not a sudden change for us. We've always been interested in, obviously, the New York market, the Northeast, and really just the Eastern Seaboard for a while. So, And so it just made sense for us to have a presence there. And, and not just for the cannabis practice, for everything else that we do. We have a large entertainment, sports, and media practice, a large tribal and gaming practice, and technology and healthcare. So, you know, we're, we're not a, a one-trick pony. Uh, New York makes sense for a lot of reasons. You know, obviously... The capital markets and, and financial capital of the world and, and given that that is a significant focus for us moving forward with our elo business and, and some of the other related transactions um we wanted to make sure that we had a presence there as well so that's really the intent behind it we're, we're happy to take on anyone and everyone because we're really focused on on what we're doing and how we're supporting the, the industry and our, and our clients is there a fundamental difference between the types of companies that you work with in New York than the ones that you work with on the West Coast? It's an interesting question. You know, fundamentally, they are structured slightly differently because of where they are set up. They're limited markets uh, with limited licenses. Um, and so they have to think through compliance and their obligations a little bit differently. They're in historically not as entrepreneurial, meaning that they can't take as many risks and do different things. Hmm. Um, but what they have done very interestingly is they've been more focused on expanding and creating this multi-state operator approach because they've had the knowledge and the resources of um, you know, financial ingenuity and scaling very quickly from an infrastructure standpoint. And, so and they didn't have the California market to play with, right? I mean, that's a, it's the biggest market in the world. They had to be very nimble and, and very uh, intuitive into what markets made sense, given that they were limited license markets and entering those markets more aggressively than what you see in California and Oregon and Colorado, Washington, et cetera, where you have a lot of companies and a lot of competition and so they built themselves slightly differently. You know, West Coast has been more brand and, and culture focused historically, obviously cultivation experience and manufacturing and and having the more you know robust ability to to cultivate. Whereas New York, you haven't really had that or, or the Northeast markets, you haven't had that. And it's been sort of a brand new industry, um, just the mindset slightly different. All right. So we are we are there. We are the last question, and then we will let you go. Um, you have a, a pretty broad and expansive view of the industry. If you could tell the LA Times or the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal, what story are they missing? What is what is everybody not paying attention to that they they should right? Like I love the 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 statement that Wayne I think it was Wayne Gretzky said like he skates to where the puck is gonna be, not where the puck is. Where should we all be looking? What's next? Yeah, another great question. What's next? I'm gonna put you on the spot, but this is the last time. I promise. 
No, and, and it's great. I mean, it, it makes me think, and you know, I've I viewed this industry maybe like some and, and unlike some others. I don't see the difference between the cannabis industry and what we've seen traditionally developed in other markets, whether it's you know traditional CPG, healthcare technology, et cetera. The biggest trend where this is going, for me at least, is much more personalized and intuitive products that people can understand or hopefully will be able to understand um, you know through robust research and development of um, both health and wellness and pharmaceutical products that are much more aligned with our lifestyles and whether that is active or um, you know more in the arts or entertainment uh, or in having to focus in very specific, uh, you know, legal or medical fields, I think the personalization of these products will outpace what we've seen in any other industry. Um, but we'll see the segmentation in very much the same way. We'll we'll see the, um, you know, CPG model, the food and beverage, the the you know, cosmetics and health and wellness products and nutraceuticals. As much as we're going to see. Um, you know, less toxic, much more beneficial pharmaceutical products for people uh, who suffer from ailments that are not being addressed by pharmaceutical products or are being worsened uh, by pharmaceutical products today. So the, the personalization to me is, is where this is going and that creates opportunity for many, many brands and segments that are not currently addressed in the industry today. That was awesome. Thank you so much, man. Our thanks to Evan Eneman, CEO of the MGO LO Alliance. You can follow Evan and MGO LO by visiting LOinsights.com and MGOCPA.com. As always, if you want to chat with us, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter with the handle at the underscore Green Rush or drop us an email at greenrush at KCSA.com. And don't forget to subscribe to the Green Rush on your favorite podcatcher. That's one take, Shay. One take.